The Lord be with you. For my money, one of the greatest movie villains of all time is the warden Samuel Norton from the modern classic, the 1994 Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins film, The Shawshank Redemption. If you watch TBS, that comes on, I think, about three times a day. (laughs) It's a story about a man who was sentenced to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary for murder despite his claims of innocence. What makes Warden Norton such a noteworthy villain? Well, it's not just because he's sadistic and cruel and cold-hearted, or because of his crimes of embezzlement of state funds and money laundering. It's not even because he conspired to have a prisoner murdered, or that he suppressed evidence to keep an innocent man in jail. Certainly each of those things make the warden a bad guy, a real movie monster, right up there with, Darth Vader and the Wicked Witch of the West and that big smoky machine from Fern Gully that chopped down all the trees. But what ties all of that, those fiendish story elements together into an extra special villainous package is that the Shawshank Warden covers nearly everything he touches in a cloak of religion. And the appearance of devout Christianity. The warden regularly quotes scripture, speaking as though his holy vocation is the care and maintenance of the prison and the discipline of its inmates. He sees himself as the hand of God's judgment, even. There's a scene where he distributes Bibles to the prisoners as they arrive, carrying on in conversation like a devout man of God. The warden even hangs his, religious, his wife's religious needlepoint in his office to cover, poetically enough, his secret crime safe that contains the evidence of his corruption. The needlepoint reads, His just judgment cometh, and that right soon, using a little bit of King James. The gross Hypocrisy of the man elegantly ties all of this together. All of his other heinous crimes delivering for us viewers a truly despicable, evil, religious hypocrite in the character of Warden Samuel Norton. It's some first-rate storytelling and part of the reason why that movie is so watchable and rewatchable. Making the villain of the story such a gigantic spiritual fraud works so well because everyone, and I mean everyone, really hates a religious phony. It gets the blood boiling. Someone who claims to speak for God while carrying on unthinkable acts of cruelty or injustice, it's infuriating in a really deep part of us, isn't it? Even a gentle soul like Eugene Peterson puts it this way. More people are exploited and abused in the cause of religion than in any other way. Sex, money, 
power, they all take a backseat to religion as a source of evil. Religion is the most dangerous energy source known to humankind. Is Eugene Peterson overstating that? Maybe, but I don't know if he's wrong. 2,800 or so, give, give or take a little bit, years ago, there was a man called Amos, a talented voice from the border town of Tekoa, a keeper of sheep and the cultivator of fig trees with the heart of a poet and the passion and vision of a prophet. And with some regularity, Amos would look around at the world as it was, and he would share his broken heart with his people. Over the years, his followers and fans gathered together a sort of bootleg compilation. The social justice prophet's greatest hits, oracles, and takedowns. And those clippings and surviving excerpts of the book of Amos that we have today. If, I don't know, Billy Holiday and Tracy Chapman and Thomas Merton or Wendell Berry or Maya Angelou had been 18th, 8th century fig and sheep farmers, they might have written something not unlike the Amos collection. Pouring out their own songs of protest, poems of outrage and grievance, essays and stories brimming with truth and holy insight. Giving voice to forgotten people, places, and sanctuaries. Naming and shaming exploitation and violence, calling out phonies and religious frauds. And to be clear, Amos just wasn't famous because of his way with words or his grumpy disposition. He wasn't just an especially creative malcontent. Amos also happened to be a theological genius, blessed with a new kind of insight, a fresh way of seeing God's people, a better way of understanding the nations and the people who live near and around them, their neighbors, and even their enemies. The book of Amos goes a little like this. After softening up the room, like a stand-up comedian maybe, by naming the violence and corruption and the wickedness of the surrounding nations, Damascus, boom, Edom, Tyre, Ammonites, Moabites, predictable, reliable, villains of the ancient world. You tell them, Amos, somewhere in the back of the room in the dark of the nightclub. But then Amos pulls a switcheroo. Amos describes a world where his people are exploited. Lives are destroyed. Families are impoverished. Poor folks who've lost everything have no choice but to sell themselves into debt slavery. This is a place where the system is rigged. And even when hard-pressed people have a case to make, they, they won't be heard or represented because the system is rigged against them. All while rich folks enjoy luxury goods and fine furniture and recreational properties and the best food and wine accompanied by the dulcet tones of the saccharine, lilting, feel-good music that they play down at the spa. Who would do this to his people? What outrageous forces are to blame? 
But this isn't a foreign army or a multinational corporation. This isn't an an invasion. This is a pattern of injustice carried out by Amos' own people. The wealthy and the privileged elites, dilettantes and casual consumers of, of their nation's lifeblood. These are the exploiters and the enslavers. The people who had once been slaves are now keepers of slaves. Amos has turned his withering eye on his own nation, his own people. Wait, aren't we supposed to be the good guys? Shouts that same voice, this time in a troubled tone. You'd think so. You'd think so. But here we are. God's people judged alongside all the other nations. This is some first-rate prophesying. For Amos, the delusion that the good folks are here with us and the bad people, will they live someplace else? This is a dangerous and toxic and terrible way to see the world. For our purposes today in the narrative lectionary, the compilers of those readings have made sure to include the two most famous passages from the Amos collection. One of them is a nugget of such pure prophetic gold that was given voice again by the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous I Have a Dream speech from August 28, 1963. Said Dr. King, no, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Another brokenhearted man, speaking the words of the prophet, calling out exploitation and the habits of evil and grievous harm perpetrated by his own nation. The other famous passage is the part which comes just before. An oracle from the Lord for the temple folk. People who gather to worship, bringing their offerings, singing their hymns. The Lord says, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. What a weird line to read in church. None of the prayers and songs and worship services mean anything if they ignore the realities of the world. How we treat people in the service and after the service, after we are sent, this is what God sees. Seek good for your neighbors. Practice justice where you live. His judgment cometh, and for the first hearers of Amos, they would sure find out. With Amos, the God of a chosen people is for the first time named as also the God who knows all those other nations, who cares for and has long-term purposes for all the peoples of the earth. Amos expands the horizon and the imagination for a people. This is the God who wants justice everywhere, in all the world. This is a global vision. 
This isn't just a members-only, exclusive patron deity for a local people. This is the God of the nations. This is the beginning of a new way of understanding absolutely everything. And the belief that there could be a different view of justice for those who call themselves God's people, again, what a painfully tragic and inadequate and dangerous view of the world. There's a reason why the message of Amos is so timeless. It's relevant in every generation because each gathered assembly of local worshipers need to hear this voice of the prophet. Sometimes, just a whisper. Sometimes, it's a shout calling us from the habits of casual complacency, religious self-interest, our own nearsighted comforts. Friends, maybe you've heard this passage, or one just like it, used as a way to really beat up a church. A great scolding word from an angry pulpit. And I hope you don't hear that today. Because the lessons of these texts are borne out in long weeks and months and years, a lifetime of growth and learning, formed in the company of saints and sinners. As we seek good, even when it is difficult, practicing justice of all things in a profoundly unfair world, building and sustaining a gathering place of faith like this one, making a space for worship and celebration, tears and laughter and young and old and prayer and song and sharing holy meals, a place where assemblies of people dream in the spirit together about a life of thoughtfulness, a life of care, calling one another as prophets and holy voices, inspiring works of love and justice in one another our holy vocation. Because the same church that gathers us in also sends us out. What a world we are sent out into. This work of justice we are called to, it's hazardous. It's difficult. And sometimes it's beautiful and frustrating and it's a daily effort. Some of us stand in positions of power and influence. Some of us merely have a long list of righteous complaints that have yet to be heard. Do you find yourself in a place of headway and hope? How does the Spirit whisper to you? Is the Spirit speaking a little louder than a whisper to you? Globally? Locally? Sure, I can think of big picture justice issues like child laborers we've never met in a distant world or polluted soil and air or a plastic-choked ocean. I can think of the big picture economies and systems of casual exploitation and exclusion But I can think of the challenges of my own private affairs, living a just life when no one else can see. 
Friends, this is a long work. And our hearts need the courage and care of a place like this. Because this is a project that is bigger and more ambitious than any one of us. Bigger than this place. What a gift it is to be a part of an assembly gathered again in this place each week. As once more we, we open our hearts to be nourished by song and prayer and the voice of the prophets in our midst. Amen. Thanks be to God.